Please pray with me. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Your word, God, is powerful. It speaks to our deepest needs. Father, right now I ask for you to speak through me, your servant. Fill all of me with all of you, so that this lecture brings you great, great glory. Open the hearts and minds of each one listening. Give her a teachable spirit so she grows more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It is in his name that I pray. Amen. Have you ever wondered why evil thrives and prospers while good struggles and suffers? The battle between good and evil has been raging since the Garden of Eden, and it has raged throughout the long history of humankind, and it still rages today. We do not have to look too far back to see the wickedness thrive and prosper under the leadership of evil men like Hitler, Pol Pot, Mao, Stalin, Lenin, Mussolini, Fidel Castro. Saddam Hussein. Those are just a few names that readily, readily come to mind when we think about evil men thriving and prospering. History reveals that there is a force at work in the world bent on destroying God's people and thwarting God's promises. The power of the world's greatest and mightiest nations is often unleashed for evil purposes by using the depraved nature of those entrusted with that power. In the life of the early church, first century Christians experienced the full force of the wickedness of the Roman Empire. Roman emperors demanded respect with a decree ordering its citizens to burn incense in their honor. All good citizens of the empire expressed their appreciation to the Roman emperors for the benefits and well-being they received. When Christians refused to pay such honor because it conflicted with their allegiance to Jesus Christ, charges of treason were brought against them, a political crime punishable by death. It was not in the emperor's best interest to let such traitors live, though their only offense was the refusal to offer the respect demanded. Sound familiar? In Esther chapter 2 verse 19 all the way through chapter 3 verse 15, evil appears to thrive and prosper as an utterly evil man demands respect from a secret Jew who is unwilling to give it. This episode from Esther shows us that security of God's people living under worldly rulers is fragile because one man said it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. The existence of the whole nation of God's people is threatened, but all those who belong to God are holy, set apart, 
consecrated by God's divine presence and nearness. He is holy. Therefore, he makes the, the ordinary extraordinary and the common uncommon. And when his people are threatened, God acts. The truth that we see in this passage of Esther is that God's powerful providence keeps his people secure. We're going to see that in our three divisions, plot foiled, plot fueled, and plot finalized. Our first division is plot foiled, Esther chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. If you'll open your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Verse 19, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. It appears that after Esther was crowned queen, there was a second gathering of virgins. It is possible that, that these are the virgins who remained in the harem after Esther won the king's heart. Or it might mean that the king commissioned another gathering of beautiful virgins to serve his depraved cravings. Based on what we know about King Ahasuerus, this is not a stretch. In verse 20, we learn that Esther is still obeying Mordecai and not revealing her ethnicity. But despite this kind of unfaithfulness in his people, God remains faithful. In his powerful providence, he will keep his people secure. Now, when I refer to God's people, I am speaking of God's chosen people, specifically the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and Christians from the New Testament times to today. Although countless Christians throughout history have suffered and are suffering and will suffer at the hands of evil men, ultimately God will triumph over evil and secure his people for eternity. No matter what happens in this world, in the end, God wins. Therefore, God's people win, even when it appears otherwise. Verses 21 through 22. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. Do you see a glimmer of God's powerful providence here? Mordecai just happens to be in the right place at the right time to overhear two of the king's eunuchs plotting to kill the king. Now, it is doubtful that they made this public knowledge. Not knowing who else in the palace might be in on the plot or corrupt, Mordecai takes this information directly to Esther, who in turn tells the king, giving credit to Mordecai. Verse 24 tells us that the king had this investigated, found the plot to be true, and had the two eunuchs hanged. God used Esther and Mordecai to rescue this pagan, self 
glorifying, woman-abusing king. Why would God spare such an evil man? He intends to use this king for his sovereign purposes. God's providence is also seen in Mordecai's good deed being recorded in the king's book of Chronicles. Now this is an important detail later in the story of Esther. However, the fact that it was only noted in the king's Chronicles is unusual and unexpected. Acts of loyalty were usually rewarded immediately and generously by Persian kings. But somehow, Mordecai's reward was overlooked. Imagine how Mordecai felt waiting and waiting and waiting for a reward that never comes. Things did not unfold as they normally did. However, God's powerful providence was at work keeping his people secure. This is true when our lives unfold in unexpected ways. And this gives us our first truth. God keeps his people secure even when life unfolds in unexpected ways. What have you experienced in your life recently that was unexpected or surprising? How well do you respond when you lose control over your circumstances? Unexpected circumstances often reveal that our control is an illusion. Thankfully, we can trust that God is always at work mysteriously, patiently, and powerfully through coincidental events and human decisions. Everything works toward the end God has ordained. He is invisibly at work, making even life's greatest disappointments a link in a chain of good things yet to come. Because we cannot see the end of things from the middle, we must walk by faith, not by sight. We can trust God to bring the greater good of his perfect plans out from all the evil that we see and experience. God uses evil and injustice to fulfill his promises to us. He keeps his people secure even when life unfolds in unexpected ways. For Mordecai, life did not get better right then. Instead, it got worse, much worse. One thing led to another, and before he knew it, he had fueled another plot. So our second division is plot, pot, plot fueled Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 and 2. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him to set, and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. With the phrase, after these things, 
The author transitions us from Mordecai's unrewarded deed to another man's promotion. The original audience would have booed and jeered at this turn of events. Instead of rewarding Mordecai, King Ahasuerus promotes Haman the Agagite. Verse 2 tells us that the king had to command his servants to bow down and pay homage to Haman. This is our first hint that Haman is not the honorable man he sets himself up to be. Yet, he demands to be worshipped like an idol. Scripture teaches that nothing or no one should serve as a substitute for God in any way. This is idolatry. We make substitutes for God by honoring, worshiping, or exalting anything or any person above God. Idolatry is a gross sin for the people of God. Verse 2 continues, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. The text does not clearly state why Mordecai refused to honor Haman. However, Mordecai's Jewish lineage may explain his refusal. When we first met Mordecai in chapter 2, verse 5, he is identified as a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. In chapter 3, verse 1, Haman is introduced as an Agagite. The author repeats this detail in verse 10. What is implied by noting the heritage of both men is the long-standing, well-known hostility between the Jews and the Agagites. Because of this, no self-respecting Benjaminite would bow before an ancestor or a descendant of the ancient Amalekites. 1 Samuel chapter 15 gives us the back story. Agag was the king of the Amalekites during the reign of Israel's first king, Saul. Like Mordecai, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. The Amalekites were a nomadic people and they were the first people to attack God's newly formed covenant nation. God promised to completely erase the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven and to be at war with them from generation to generation. Years later, Israel settled in the land of promise. Eventually, Saul was crowned king, and God instructed him to attack the Amalekites and completely destroy them and everything that belonged to them. Saul obeyed God in part. In disobedience to God's command, Saul took Agag, their king, alive, along with the best of their sheep and cattle. For his disobedience, Saul was removed as king of Israel. For centuries later, other persistent enemies of Israel were called Agagites, even though they had no ethnic relationship to the Amalekites. In the first century, the Romans were referred to as Agagites. 
Although rabbinic tradition held that Haman was in fact a descendant of Agag, he did not have to be genetically descended from the Amalekites to have earned the name Agagite. The term simply characterized him as an enemy of the Jews, a phrase used of Haman in verse 10. The original readers would have understood this as a clue introducing yet another episode of the age-old conflict between good and evil played out now between Israel and the powers that sought to destroy her. In verse 3, the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? All the king's servants and subjects were expected to obey the king's commands without question. The same is true of the commands of a holy God and king. Because God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, we look for God by looking for opposites. When we see a self-centered, depraved, arrogant, narcissistic earthly king, we rejoice in seeing the exalted, majestic, and exceedingly good heavenly king of kings. When we see an utterly depraved, evil, glory-hungry man like Haman, we rejoice in an utterly holy, faithful, and altogether glorious God. God is holy, so he is worthy of our worship and absolute obedience. He is set apart from his entire creation, entirely other. Because he is holy, God always acts in a pure and righteous manner. Quite the opposite is true of King Ahasuerus. God is both great and good at all times. There is no evil mixed in with his goodness. When it comes to Haman, there is no goodness mixed in with his evil. Despite the urging of his fellow servants, Mordecai refuses to obey this command of King Ahasuerus. Verses 4 through 6, And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So he had made known to him, as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Once Haman found out that Mordecai was a Jew, his Agagiteness or his anti-Semitism is revealed against the enemy of his ancestors. Even if Mordecai was not a practicing Jew, and even if he had all but completely assimilated to the Persian culture, he still identified himself 
as a Benjaminite. Surely he had heard the stories of this ancient tribe from his father and his grandfather. The Jews used stories to move their history forward from one generation to the next. Haman's response is disproportionately hateful. He immediately sought to not only get rid of Mordecai, but to destroy all the Jews in the kingdom. All the power of the Persian Empire was about to come down on the Jewish people because of the arrogant anger and pompous pride of one man. But God. Haman could plot and plan, but ultimate, ultimately God would keep the people he had set apart as his treasured possession secure. Though in often hidden and incomprehensible ways, God is faithful even when we are faithless. Israel remained his chosen people, even in the judgment of exile. His people could not see his hand. They did not acknowledge his presence, and they did not understand his ways. Often the same is true of you and me. But even when we cannot see his hand, or do not acknowledge his presence, or do not understand his ways. We can trust God is always at work for our ultimate good and his glory. He can and he will keep his people secure. The truth we learn from this passage is that God keeps his people secure through often hidden and incomprehensible ways. How do you respond to those who mistreat you, hurt you, or harm you? What is your response to the evil and injustice you experience and see in the world around you? Choose to trust in God's unerring faithfulness to fulfill all his covenant promises. We can trust him even when it seems like the world is going down in flames through the actions or inactions of man. We can trust him, even in the midst of natural or man-made disasters, and even when his hand is hidden and his ways are incomprehensible. His plan to fully redeem his people and his creation cannot and will not be thwarted. But evil men, they are blind to God's hand. We see this in Haman as he puts the finishing touches on his evil plot to destroy God's people. Our third division is plot finalized. Esther chapter three, verses seven through 15. Verse seven, in the 21st month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month, till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. 
Now to determine the most favorable time to attack the Jews, Haman consults the purr. These were clay cubes, much like modern dice. Casting the lots literally meant throwing the dice. The ancient Purim, which is the plural of purr, was used for divination. It was used to ask the gods about the future. After months of casting lots, it was determined that the best time to exterminate God's people was on the 13th day of the 12th month. This particular date lights up God's powerful providence in neon lights. This date, it did not come from the Persian gods. It came from the God, the Lord God Almighty. The day he chose was the day that the Passover celebration began. Passover commemorated Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, an event that established Israel as a nation of God's covenant people. The joy of this holiday would turn to sorrow in Persia when Haman's evil decree calling for the annihilation of the Jews was delivered. But spoiler alert, God will once again deliver his people. God's powerful providence keeps his people secure. Haman finalizes his wicked plan by getting the king's seal of approval in verses 8 through 10 by saying, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. Haman is not altogether truthful or transparent with King Ahasuerus. The people were not all scattered and distant. In fact, one was sleeping with the king and another worked every day at the king's gate. They were not all following the distinct laws of God, hence their exile. And they were not defying the king's laws. But Haman manipulates and obscures the facts to get the king's approval. Not that he needed to. King Ahasuerus is shockingly disinterested and apathetic about the annihilation of an entire ethnic group of people in his kingdom. Haman promises 10,000 talents of silver to sweeten the deal. Maybe that's what turned the king's heart. 
the royal treasury had been depleted by an unsuccessful war with Greece, and the amount that Haman offered amounted to two-thirds of the empire's annual tax revenue. The king didn't even bother to ask Haman how he would get his hands on that amount of silver. He just readily and greedily agrees. King Ahasuerus tells Haman he can do whatever he wants to these people and gives him his signet ring to rubber stamp his decrees. In verses 12 through 13, the king's scribes are summoned and an edict with all Haman commanded is written to send to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Haman's demonic plan, one of the most heinous decrees in history, was signed and sealed, then delivered to every person in every province of the empire. There was no place for the Jews to hide, and Haman left no room for misinterpretation. Everyone who was not a Jew was ordered to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews and to plunder their goods. This mimics God's command to destroy all the Amalekites. But this decree was motivated by unholy revenge, a trademark of Satan. In verse 15, it says that the couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The contrast of the calm of King Ahasuerus and Haman with the confusion of the city of Susa is intentional. A city, an empire known for its tolerance of many different peoples is suddenly and murderously intolerant. But there is one who is always calmly in control and never thrown into confusion. Behind Haman's plot to kill the Jews stood Satan. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, through the days Jesus walked this earth, Satan has plotted and schemed to annihilate the line from which Messiah would come. He was defeated at every turn by the powerful providence of God. God steadfastly keeps his people secure even when it appears evil is winning. Our third truth is that God keeps his people secure even when it appears evil is winning. Where do you see evil winning in the world 
around you? How do you combat the feelings of frustration, anger, and despair that bubble up as you witness wickedness thriving and prospering? An assault on God's covenant people at any time in human history is really an attack on the authority, power, and character of God himself. Although neither God nor Satan is mentioned in the book of Esther, there is a force at work directing the mighty power of Persia against God's people. It is a force that demands to be respected and honored, a force willing to destroy those who refuse. However, an even greater power is also at work protecting God's people from destruction in the battle between good and evil. Fix your gaze and set your confidence on what is true about this power, the power of God Almighty. Open your Bible and meditate on Psalm 46, which includes these words, be still and know, recognize, understand that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, our refuge, our high tower. Did you hear those attributes? The Lord of hosts, our stronghold, our, our refuge, our strong tower. These attributes can be added to the list of truths about God that you've made. In our study so far, you have learned that God is the Word made flesh, the King of Kings, our Deliverer, a just judge, Adonai, the Lord of Lords, Abba, sovereignly good, gracious, and holy. Stringing just those eight attributes of God together is enough to keep you and me trusting in His powerful providence, even when it appears evil is winning. But if you are still struggling with the fact that evil thrives and prospers while good struggles and suffers, look at the cross. While Satan channeled his evil and wrath against Jesus Christ, through the human agents who nailed him to the cross. It was, in fact, God's saving work, shedding the blood of the perfect Lamb of God to pay the penalty for our sin. The cross resulted in the ultimate good and eternal security of God's people. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were released after being arrested in Jerusalem, they led the church in a prayer that indicted all the worldly powers for the death of Jesus, but acknowledged God's hand. They say, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand 
should happen. That, my friends, is the powerful providence of God. Commentator Karen Job says that it was not in spite of the greatest injustice and most concerted evil against Jesus that God achieved his work of atonement. But through those very acts of injustice and evil, what mind-boggling mystery! God's absolute sovereignty is displayed magnificently in the great paradox that even Satan's wrath and retribution working through worldly powers is nevertheless constrained or limited by God's eternal decrees. God works concurrently through the very forces that Satan means for evil to bring about his perfect good. Remember that even when all we can see is evil thriving and prospering, God's powerful providence is keeping his people secure. Hallelujah. Would you pray with me? Oh, sovereign Lord, Abba Father, how we praise you. You are the all-powerful King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no one like you in all the earth. What you say, you faithfully do. You promise to give us your peace. You accomplish this by sending your one and only beloved son to die the death that we deserve to die for our sin, a sin which separates us from you, our holy God. His death has redeemed us and reconciled our broken relationship with you. Again, I say hallelujah. May we walk in peace with you and with one another, O oh God, especially in the coming days when the world will erupt once again in violence and division. Help us to proclaim your peace and act as your agents of peace to the glory of your name. Before you alone we bow and pay homage, O oh God. This we pray in the precious name of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Amen.